Good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm going to have to keep coughing. I'm on the tail end of a bad cold, so uh, forgive me. And um, it's all right, clean and unclean. I think we've cleared up the brownness, but the smell of barbecue sauce lingers, Beth Mead. Might take some deep cleaning a bit later on. Okay. All right, so here we are this morning to look at the whole subject around clean and unclean. It's a really interesting passage, but um, before we dive into it, shall we, shall we pray? Lord, um, there's so much to, to find in this scripture, so much that you want to say to us, and we just pray that as we uh, look at this story from the past, that we can see with clear eyes as to what it means to us today as we engage with our communities on your behalf as your ambassadors. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, um, here we have this passage opening with, with, this, uh, with this sentence. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Oh, you bet they did. Oh, you bet they did. They gathered around Jesus. This man was a troublemaker. And the charge sheet, just, just from what we've read in the book of Mark so far, we're only on chapter 7, but if you start from the beginning of Mark, you can see already that Jesus, in previous confrontations with the Pharisees, has been questioned about forgiving sins, eating with sinners, allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, not taking part in fasting, Jesus himself has been healing on the Sabbath, and he'd even been accused of being possessed by demons himself. And now, well, he and his disciples were flouting the tradition of ceremonial washing before eating. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had arrived down from Jerusalem, and they gathered. And I have no doubt that they made notes, and they were most certainly building a case against him. Now, as we've progressed in our sermon series, if you've been with us through at least some of these weeks, uh, the, the series A Life Worth Living, we've been following the journey that Jesus has taken with his disciples from their initial calling, some of his initial teaching, practical field trips to show them uh, how to do the job of being a disciple, and then being sent out in pairs to, to, to heal and to teach. And all the time, he's discipling them. He's mentoring, coaching, teaching, correcting. And as we consider as a, as a church and as individuals what it means to go out and be evangelists in our community, I think today's reading has to be seen uh, as a lesson and maybe even a bit of a warning. Because even, even as we speak, Christians are being watched very carefully. Any pronouncement that is made, uh, any statement that is made by Christians seems to be picked up on uh, very quickly. So although the sermon title here is Clean and Unclean, in this passage, I would say if there's one word that really sums it up, it would be integrity. Integrity, and we'll come on uh, as to what that word really means a, bit, a little later uh, in the talk. But in this passage, we also learn something about what it means to be faithful representatives of Christ. Because, as I said, when we practice and profess our faith in the public marketplace, the world is watching. And let's face it, the media loves nothing more than a fallen Christian, right? 
I, I just picked um, some fairly recent headlines here. This one's from a couple of years ago. Uh, the youth worker and trainee vicar who raped two girls. Terrible, terrible story compounded by an alleged cover-up, which is, you know, uh, we love that even more, don't we, when the church tries to cover that over. That's taken with even more glee. Alleged cover-up by the Diocese of London. And then we had uh, Paul Flowers, you remember him? He was the uh, chairman, or is the chairman of the co-op bank, caught up in a sex and drugs scandal. Uh, Even our own uh, Bishop Andrew recently disclosed that he'd been the victim of physical abuse at a Christian summer camp as a young man. And he says, quoted here as saying, my profoundest prayers are with all those affected by this and my heartfelt desire is that lessons might be learned so this never happens again. Now I know these might be extreme examples and hey, none of us are perfect. But we have to be very cautious and very aware of that these kinds of incidents just fuel the flames of those who are looking at us as being nothing more than judgmental hypocrites. In no position to be telling other people how to live their lives. And this essentially is the argument or the accusation, I should say, that Jesus in this passage is aiming at the Pharisees. He quotes Isaiah at them. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we're going to have a look at specifically what Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of. As we do that, think about what that might mean as we engage today with the world. First of all, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are replacing Scripture with tradition. Now, over the years, the Pharisees had developed a highly complex system of purity regulations. And the example given in this passage is that they wouldn't eat unless their hands were clean. Now, this wasn't about hygiene, not specifically. It's not the kind of uh, hand washing that you and I would take as normal before we sit down for a meal. This was an elaborate ceremonial washing, which also extended to cleaning all the related items of a meal, the cups, the plates, uh, the utensils, the kettles. And Jesus says, you're hypocrites. This is just play acting. You're claiming to be teaching the deep truths of God's law, when in fact all you're doing is teaching human traditions. Now I'm quite sure that in their defense, the Pharisees would have said, well, these traditions, these regulations are in place as a means to ensure that people do fulfill the law. But the truth is, They'd become an end in themselves. Empty rituals devoid of any authentic heart for God. And a long, long way from what the law originally had intended. Contrast that. Contrast that with Jesus and what we've learned of him so far, even as I say in the book of Mark. He's demonstrated throughout his ministry a radically different vision of the kingdom of God and what it really means to fulfill the requirements of the law. He's freed people of evil spirits. He's healed countless sick people. He's reached out to the untouchable tax collectors and Gentiles. He's performed miracles of abundance. He's brought the dead to life. And this version of what it means to be God's people is so far removed from that of the Pharisees that it inevitably brings him into constant conflict with them. Why do you eat with sinners? Asked the Pharisees. Because it's the sick that need a doctor says Jesus. Why are you healing on a Sabbath? They ask him. Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, 
says Jesus. Mercy, grace, love, compassion, freedom. All of these things are coming head on against this complex set of rules and hard hearts. And the challenge for us, I think, uh, as we reach out to those who don't know Jesus, is how, how do we present this gospel of grace and compassion and love without getting caught up in this baggage of tradition? Let me take a very simple example. We're all sitting here this morning on a Sunday morning. I'm up here droning on for 20-odd minutes. You're all standing and sitting at the right time. We don't quite have the, uh, the uniforms on anymore and the dress. I did one, wear one this morning. Um, but the collars are still worn by the ministers. We know roughly what's going to happen in a service. A song and a prayer and all the different elements. These things, these things are not necessarily bad, but let's, let's call them for what they are. These are traditions. These are traditions of how we do church. And we've got to realize that as we reach out to others, you know, how do they view this? How does a visitor look at, at what we do? Because to many people, this is going to be a wholly alien and disturbing concept in terms of what we do here on a Sunday morning. And it challenges to think about what we, what, how we do church. How do we do it in a meaningful and relevant way that gets to the scriptural heart of the gospel without being weighed down by the baggage? And I think, you know, as we go into this vision process, this is going to be one of the questions we have to ask ourselves. As Christians, not just in terms of the worship service, but in how we engage the the events that we put on, the, the programs that we roll out, are we getting, are we being faithful to the heart of the gospel? Or are we being too traditional, too tied down to the things that we've always done. And we've really got to be ready to rise to that challenge, especially, as I say, as the, as the vision process unfolds. All of us, I think, need to be able to think outside what we do now and think instead of the heart of the gospel and how we engage with other people. The second thing that, that Jesus really points at with the Pharisees is a selective use of Scripture. And this is where we get into that stuff about Corban. So let's talk about that. So the Ten Commandments clearly say, honor your father and mother. We all know that one. Now, there are obviously various aspects to what that might mean. How do we honor our father and mother? Now, in Jesus' day, certainly one of the most important elements of that was financial support, practical and financial support. But the Pharisees had found this really devious way of avoiding this obligation. So they declared the financial support to be korban. And this word korban meant a gift devoted to God. So instead of giving money to mum and dad, the Pharisees would make an oath. They'd pledge to give that money to God, which in practical terms meant giving it to the temple, uh, which often, in effect, ended up with them lining their own pockets. And how did they justify this avoidance of a scriptural command? Very simply, by citing a different scriptural command. They would draw on a verse like this in the book of Numbers, where Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So, the logic runs, if they pledge their money to God, it would be breaking the law to break their word, wouldn't it? One passage of scripture is being used to negate the provisions of another. And of course, to the advantage of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the very people who are supposed to be leading the nation in the truth and light and the ways of God. No wonder Jesus 
was getting just a little bit upset with them. Of course, we would never misuse scripture these days, would we? No, no, of course not. It's interesting, when I was uh, making notes for this sermon and I typed the word Corbin into my uh, iPad, I got a spell check error and suggested I wanted actually the word Corbin. Which was quite appropriate, actually, because this, this sort of accidental reference to a, to a political figure um, actually tells us something quite important, because certainly if you looked at the Pharisees in those days and what they were doing with this whole labyrinthine uh, um, uh, tradition and interpretation, uh, there was a definitely a political aspect and dimension to it. Their application of the law would support certain programs. And it's, and, and it's clear that there was an undercurrent of subversion towards the Roman occupation. And you don't have to look very hard in the world today, do you, to see how the Christian faith is being used as a political weapon. I think one of the saddest things about the persecution of Christians in so many parts of the world, which seems to be getting worse, is that Christians are undoubtedly being viewed in many cases, as an instrument of Western politics, of Western imperialism. Look across the Atlantic to our cousins in America. And um, no, I'm not going to say, I'm not doing any Trump comments. But look at our faith. Look at the way the Bible and our faith is used shamelessly to support political views. And it's, it's maybe not so apparent in this country, or at least it never used to be. I certainly observed, and you may have done, done so too, that in the build-up to the EU referendum, there was some, um, shall we say charitably, some very creative applications of Scripture in support of a particular political position. Look, don't get me wrong, politics is life. And we all quite naturally hold strong views about the things that are important to us. And it would be bizarre, if frankly not impossible, if our faith did not inform our opinions. But what we need to do is avoid the trap of the Pharisees and be at least self-aware enough not to manipulate Scripture to our own ends. Because if we do, one of the consequences of doing that is you shut down the argument. You shut down the opinion. If you walk into uh, a discussion with your brother or your sister and you've already believed that you have God-given rightness in your own position, it doesn't leave much room for dialogue, does it? So let's be aware, and especially as we reach out into the world, this is another reason why we've got to dig deep and understand that as representatives of Christ, that has to be our first priority. And his way... His way that we've discussed earlier, his way is, if I can paraphrase St. Paul, the most excellent way. Because the third accusation that Jesus makes of the Pharisees is this. They are failing to see that purity comes from within. Now at this point in our reading, Jesus turns away from the Pharisees and he turns to the crowd. And you can sense the importance and the urgency of what he really wants people to understand. There's something very fundamental here. Listen, he says, listen. All this complicated, elaborate, elaborate ritual of cleansing everything within sight, it's a complete waste of time. It achieves nothing, it is superficial. What you eat does not make you unclean. 
Food just goes into your stomach, goes through the normal digestive processes, and then out again. What really counts, what really makes you impure and unclean and sinful is what comes out of your heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, lewdness, theft, slander, arrogance. Our internal state of being is what dictates the cleanliness or uncleanliness of our outward actions and words. Now, in this particular passage, Jesus doesn't go on to say what it is we can do about the state of our hearts. But we know, we know that Jesus himself is the answer. We, we can't solve the problems in this regard simply by trying to get in touch with our feelings or just trying a little bit harder. These diseases are too rooted in our human condition. They're too much part of our DNA. And only Christ can bring that freedom and bring that healing that our hearts so desperately need. How many, how many of you were here a couple of weeks ago when uh, Carol, Carol Cole was speaking at the evening service? Quite a few of you. That's great. And if you missed it, tough. It was a great talk. And uh, Carol, we'll have to get you up again uh, here or, uh, one day to, um, to talk to us again. But as you may know, Carol is the founder of the, uh, the All Night Cafe. But what was so compelling for me about uh, Carol's talk that night was the story about her mission to help the homeless and the dispossessed was rooted in her own experiences as a child and a young woman when she went through a very, very uh, disturbed and difficult upbringing. And she vividly described that for many years she was carrying that, uh, a real hatred in her heart. Hatred that was only finally released when she gave her life to Christ. And it seems to me that example is really surely one of the keys to effective evangelism. When we've been set free, when our hearts have been healed, is that not the greatest motivation for us to be reaching out to others so that they too can, can experience what we've experienced. Now, Carol's may be a particular, particularly striking example, but all of us, all of us who profess to be disciples of Jesus Christ have been set free. We are forgiven. The healing has either been completed or it is in the process of being completed as we are transformed into his likeness through the work of the Holy Spirit. So I come back to that word I used at the beginning, this word integrity. Because to have integrity means to be whole. It means we are undivided. And if we're to be people of integrity and effective ambassadors of Christ, then we too have to be undivided. What we say and do must be consistent with our hearts. And in fact, I would say, if you look at the examples of those fallen Christians at the beginning of the sermon, they show us that what is within will inevitably out, eventually. We can paper over cracks for so long with a smile and a couple of worship songs. But we've got to deal with the root cause. Now, I know this is, uh, is becoming a, a fairly obvious and, um, if you like, recurring theme of sermons in recent months, but the world needs Christ like never before. And I would go as far as to say the world needs Christians like never before. Not Christians who place the traditions of the church above the centrality of the gospel. Not Christians who beat people over the head with some ill-chosen extracts from Scripture. Not Christians who say one thing and do another. No, the world needs Christians with integrity who model the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. And I want to finish this morning by quoting um, the Bishop of Dorking, Joe Wells, 
Um, and those of you who are observing closely will note that I have therefore quoted both our diocesan bishops in one sermon, which is surely worth a lot of brownie points somewhere along the way. But Bishop Joe, writing in the Way newspaper, uh, which you, uh, there's still some copies out there if you're interested. Uh, she said this, and I'm sorry, that's very small writing, but I am going to read it for you. She was asked about hopes and fears for 2017, and she said this, For the first time in my lifetime, I find it easier to voice fears than hopes. The fears have to do with the two big political events of 2016, Brexit and Trump, and the expose of our post-truth society. That brings me to pray for a rediscovery of truth. How might that happen? Not by rhetoric, but through the demonstrable reality of lives lived with integrity and purpose by Christians who are so secure in God's blessing that they can be reckless in giving it away. Because when others see lives lived not for personal gain, but in costly giving to others, then they glimpse Jesus. So long as we then dare to preach what we also practice. I think those are very profound words. And as we're studying this, this sermon series, A Life Worth Living, is that not, and does that not sound like, a life worth living? I'm going to close now. I'm going to ask the music team uh, if they will come up and we're going to have them play uh, a song, The Heart of Worship, Returning to the Heart of Worship. And as they play, I'd ask you to stay in your seats and you can sing along or not as you choose, but reflect on some of these things. You might want to ask yourself some of these questions. Is there anything in, in my life that I am adding to the gospel? Is there something that I'm hanging on to that actually is not core? to the fundamental gospel of Jesus Christ, but is, but is an addition that I'm, I'm, I'm withholding, I'm proving t- there's an obstacle that I need to get over. Am I hung up on traditions or forms of worship? Am I a person of integrity? Is my heart in the right place for Jesus so that they'll help me represent him and be an ambassador for him to be an authentic Christian voice in our society? Because if we're going to be effective as a church, if we're going to mobilize our vision, if we're going to be out there and embraced in a community, not judged, not called out, not on the, the wrong end of the media, then living authentic lives with compassion, mercy, and truth in the way that Jesus Christ lived his life and did his ministry, that is our calling. We will fail along the way, but with his strength and with the Holy Spirit, we can achieve it. Amen. When the music fades, all is stripped away. And I simply come Long just to bring Something that's the word I don't bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself is not what you have required 
You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it When it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for Sing, I've made it But it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've when it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. So we just remain in an attitude of prayer as we come before God to offer our confession to Him. Maybe that something Jeff has said. Uh, has really touched you that you realize that inside all is not as you wish or maybe you've been carrying some baggage about conforming to church traditions instead of speaking the gospel and sharing that so we're reminded that in the scriptures it said man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at our hearts so as we say the words of the confession Just allow the Lord to look into our hearts, open our hearts to him, and allow him to make us clean. Christ came in humility to share our lives. Forgive us our pride. Lord, have mercy. Christ came with good news for all people. 
Forgive us our silence. Christ, have mercy. Christ came in love to a world of suffering. Forgive us our self-centeredness. Lord, have mercy. Now as we just allow the Lord to cleanse our hearts, we receive his forgiveness. May God who loved the world so much that he sent his son to be our saviour, each one of us. May he forgive us our sins and make us holy to serve him in the world. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as Anna comes to lead us in our intercessions, we continue in prayer. Father God, we worship you today and we pray for our own local community of Camberley, our homes and families, our friends and neighbours. We ask you to help us to be beacons of hope, compassion and strength to those around us and by our lives be examples of your son, Jesus Christ, so drawing others to you, our only hope in this world. We pray for our leaders, nationally and locally, that they may be guided by your wisdom in the decisions they make. We pray for the prison officers, the police, and for all the emergency services, especially at this time where they lack resources, that they would be strong in leadership and able to act courageously in all they do to serve their communities. We confess for our own failings and lack of compassion and love. We thank you that you forgive our failings and we ask you to give us a spirit of love and forgiveness that sees only the good in each other, that bears no grudges and forgives all hurts. May we learn to forgive even as you have forgiven us that we may live together in unity. At a time when many question the relevance of the church, we pray that you give us the presence to be witnesses in the world. Witnesses that strengthen the presence of Christ in our communities. Help us to be the answer to those questions of relevance by what we do and what we are known for. Make us a welcoming body of Christ here at St Paul's so that people can see your light shining through us. Father, we pray that you are able to provide solace and inspiration to those who feel detached from you at this moment. Those who feel you may not be present in their daily lives or who find it difficult to turn their thoughts to you. We pray that they are able once again to experience your presence. Father, we bring to you those we know who are unwell in mind body or spirit. Please take a moment to name them quietly to yourselves. Thank you for being beside us at all times, even when we fail to realise it. Father, we pray for your church across the world, especially for those suffering from persecution. 
We pray for all of these things in your name. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now we say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 